Welcome to the Anne Arundel County Police Department. What you are about to hear are real stories, told by some of the men and women who lived through them. Join us as we examine active, closed, and sometimes cold cases with an occasional look behind the badge. Our mission is to be informative and engaging with the goal of providing justice and just maybe closure to our victims and their families. I'm Chris Anderson, and this is The Crime Journal. Hey, and welcome to the show. I am your host, Chris Anderson, and you're listening to The Crime Journal. Today, we continue our conversation surrounding the Michael Temple homicide. If you haven't listened to part one, I encourage you to go back and give it a listen. It's been years since that cold February night in 2010, and detectives have reached an impasse in their traditional investigative efforts. More often than not, things take time to get sorted out, and sometimes time is all we have. Time to process, time to reflect, time to revisit what we have and what we know so that maybe we can uncover what we need. And joining me today again is Lieutenant Jackie Davis. Hey, Chris. Happy to be back. And a very special guest, Sarah Chenoweth, who is our DNA technical leader from our crime lab. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us, Sarah. Um, let's let's kind of recap, Lieutenant, if we, if we can, uh, what we touched on in the last episode with Michael Temple. So yeah. this was 2010. Yep. Home invasion turned robbery, turned shooting, turned homicide. Yes. That's and a good way to put it. How, how far have we gotten um, in the timeline? I, I think we're approaching the 2015, 2018 range, Michael Temple. Yeah, I think it was 2015 um, when Michael succumbed to the injuries that occurred in 2010. Um, and what Detective Collier was telling us was that they had a bunch of evidence that they had recovered um, to include blood that they believed may have been the suspects. Um, and we asked her, okay, well, you have blood, you have DNA. How do you not have a suspect? And that's when she alluded to um, CODIS and the things that our crime lab are capable of doing. And, and as far as the, the, the legwork, the footwork uh, by the detectives had kind of come to a standstill um, as, as far as their physical efforts go. So now we are kind of leaning back on the evidence um, technology to, to kind of propel this case forward. And that is why Sarah is here with us today to kind of discuss some of the intricacies of that process. I am. Because well, that's what DNA is for. It's a support role to the investigation. It's to support the investigators as they try to narrow down different paths. So not to put you on the spot um, or anything, but how long have you been in the DNA field? I have been in the DNA field since 1999 um, and here in Anne Arundel County since 2006. And I think that's something that's kind of interesting is I don't think a lot of people realize we have our very own crime lab here. We do. We don't send it out. Um, Sometimes we do, but we do everything Mm in-house, biology, chemistry, all of it. Latent prints and digital forensics and all sorts of things, yes. That's pretty cool. Yeah. You must love your job. It's always something different (laughs) and strange. And so... You said 1999. I know. This is 2023. Yes. And I mean, what have you seen in in that span as far as the technology is concerned? I know. But I mean, where, where, how far have we come in that field in in, in that time frame? It's, It's, it's a lot more precise now. It's a lot more sensitive now, which is actually difficult because 
the folks at the crime scene have to be so much more careful of preventing any sort of cross-contamination or accidentally having their DNA on an item of evidence. So we take, we have so many quality control measures. Then when we first started, we were perhaps, you know, not as concerned with these things. But, right. you know, now it's so sensitive that we have, we do almost as much quality control as we do testing of evidence. Well, that's we a good thing, make right? sure, Yes. We want to make sure it's reliable because it's powerful. So yeah. we want to make sure that it's reliable and used responsibly. Yeah, that's that's a great <laughs> way to put it. We want to make sure that we have the right people in mm-hmm. the right places and that type of stuff. And a little something that I touched on prior uh, to turning on the microphones, how much material was required then versus now as far as samples go and, and, and testing? Right. So like when I started, you would need a visible amount of blood stain, for example. You would have to see a red-brown spot in order to be able to get enough DNA to get a forensic DNA profile. Now we're talking 10 or fewer cells oh my worth gosh. of DNA. Yeah. So that is shocking. Yes. And that's where the question is, is it necessarily, was it left during the crime? Because if you do right. DNA testing on any old doorknob, you would get a DNA profile, but is that going to be helpful to the investigator? Right, and that's where I guess where the sample comes from, how much was there is all stuff the detectives and the state's attorney's office is going to weigh in mm-hmm. when they're deciding who to charge or, or who not to charge with something. Because mm-hmm. we're leaving our DNA everywhere. Like you said, you know, on crime scenes, you know, we're walking through there too, and our hair's falling off right. too. And right. um, that's a very, very good point. But that's fascinating. Ten cells? Compared to a visible amount was required 20 years ago, and right. now it's just, it's what's, incredible. What's going to be required in another 20 years? Breath. That's going to be amazing. Right, we'll that you breathe, breath. You breathe the air in a room. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully we're retired. We'll see. So we, we touched on it a little bit um, in our prior conversation. Mm-hmm. How important is it is, is it as an investigator on your end to collect every single thing imaginable that could potentially be linked um, evidence-wise, like on on your end. Right. We only have one chance to collect that evidence, and you only have as long as the crime scene is secure in order Mm -hmm. to collect and retain that evidence. Now, it's just not possible to necessarily test everything off the batch, off the bat. Right. But we will do a batch of the most probative items first, and then we'll try a few additional items, and we can do multiple rounds of testing with different scientific specialties. So back in 2010, when the crime originally happened, mm-hmm. we had um, the testing was done by an analyst who's no longer with our lab, but she had tested some blood stains that were at the crime scene. Okay. And she had also tested um, a knife, a folding knife, that was at the scene, and there are a couple other items. And it was only a small percentage of what was collected, but even though those are what we tested, and there's sometimes we didn't test, we retained it all, we saved it all, we repackaged it. We're really careful only to open one item of evidence at a time so that there's no confusion and nothing, uh, we don't lose track of anything and everything's closely documented. That way, when I went back to this case, in like 20, 
15 and on, onward, mm-hmm. yeah. I still had all my notes and all of my coworkers' notes from 2010 when she originally tested it. And we knew which items were which and where they had been the entire time. And because you guys are an accredited lab and you do have those safeguards and stuff in place, all of that's still admissible into court, correct? Even uh, though it's yes. been opened and closed and opened and closed, mm-hmm. because of the way you guys do it, it's admissible. Yes, we we, we have um, a pretty good barcode tracking system. Okay. Um, and it's not super fancy, but it, <laughs> it works. It works. We've had it for 20 years now in, in Anne Arundel County. So we track everything by barcode as to what room it goes into and when an analyst takes it for testing, it goes into our custody, and it's all documented to the minute, to the second. Okay. Now, Detective Collier, and I think you mentioned it earlier too, talked about things going into CODIS. Can you talk about what CODIS is yes. and how things get put in? So CODIS is the combined DNA index system. Okay. So they did a little stretching to make it sound like a word, CODIS. <laughs> CODIS has... Um, what's called an LDIS, which is the local DNA system. That's what we have in Anne Arundel County. And then there's the state. We feed into the state, and it feeds into the national system. And altogether, that's CODIS. And that's run by the FBI. Okay. Um, there was a federal law back in 1994 that established that CODIS database and stated what could go into it. So what we put into it are profiles from evidence from a crime scene, so unknown profiles from a crime scene. Mm-hmm. It could even be a known profile from a cr- crime scene, but it has to be something that we can document came from the perpetrator. Okay, gotcha. So even if it's been identified, that evidence can go into CODIS. So if another crime is committed by that same perpetrator, those crimes could be connected. So now when we have to be able to, to say that they are the perpetrator of a crime. Does that mean they were found guilty in court? Or does that, what is the, the statute of the limit there? So um, there's about 21 million profiles in CODIS. Oof. And about just over a million of them are from crime scene evidence. Wow. So say in, in this situation, we had a knife, it had a blood stain on it, had DNA profile, and we had the victim's DNA. You know, detectives, right. yeah. you know, obtained a swab from... Mr. Temple, yeah. and we were able to say, oh, this portion of this stain is from Mr. Temple, but the rest of this is from somebody else. Okay. So we were able to put that part of the profile into the database. So it gets searched against the other million samples that are from other crime scenes all around the country. Okay. And there's about 5 million profiles from arrestees in different states. Okay. And there's about 15 million profiles from convicted offenders. Okay. So those are nationwide. So that profile gets compared continuously, ongoing. So, you know, this happened in 2010, but it it kept searching every couple times a month for for all those years. It just kept searching, but nothing. It never matched. So it's just searching over and over and over against all of the known profiles in the system to to mm-hmm. to have that marker come up. Well, now it would go against the unknowns too, and say that these two cases are linked as well, right? It would. Okay, um, so it would link against all of them. So if, say, the perpetrator of this case had left their DNA at another crime scene, three, five, seven years later, mm-hmm. then those crime scenes should match each other and we'd give us more information. But we didn't get one of those hits. Wow. So what it says to investigators then is that. 
this person had never been convicted one of, of one of those qualifying offenses mm-hmm. and has never left DNA at a subsequent crime scene. Right. Wow, that's that's a puzzle right there. You would think, you know, that was a pretty egregious crime. Doesn't seem like it's somebody that would be doing the first first crime mm-hmm. maybe. Mhm. Wow, that's that's fascinating. Yeah, cuz the power of it depends on unfortunately have committed multiple crimes. Now, is there a, uh, I don't know how to word this, like a time limit? Does DNA, I don't want to say expire, does it degrade? Does it, how does that work? Is it sample specific? It's variable. So people have done DNA testing off of Egyptian mummies or ancient burial sites, right? Thousands of years, yeah. If you have a very, well, if you have a lot of DNA present to begin with, it will break down over time, but there should still be enough left for us to get a DNA profile from it. For something, yeah. Right. Now, when you're talking about crime scene evidence, sometimes it's very little. So ideally, it should be stable because mm-hmm. it's you know at room temperature and there's no trapped moisture. We always Controlled package things exactly in paper, and so it can't trap any moisture or have it break down. But... When there's very little to begin with, you have to use it up. You have to use up a portion of it every time you do the testing. That makes sense. You had to kind of chip away at the the block there to use it. Gotcha. So we never try to use it all up, so we'd have some for future technology. And, you know, that was a question when I went back to this evidence in 2016, 2018. Is is there still enough there to do new testing? Right. Yeah, so you, you bring up a good point about 2015, 2016, 2018 time period. How did we end up revisiting um, this, this profile? Right, so you know, technology is always changing. Science is always coming up with new ideas. So back in, um, I think it was like 2007 or so, when um, doing genealogy and, and people could submit their own DNA to genealogy websites in order to find information about their ancestry. Um, that was like in the late 2000s, before 2010. Uh-huh. And it kind of took off from there. And it was you know, 23andMe and Ancestry and all these different brand names where you could send off a sample of saliva and they would do a type of DNA testing that's different from what we do in forensics. And they would compare all those profiles from folks who'd sent in their saliva samples to see if there's any relations that maybe they didn't know about, like a cousin they didn't know about or even right. a sibling or something. So um, in 2015 or so, that's when um, Parabon, which is a private company, they saw that this genealogy could be used for crime scene work. Okay. This eight-year-old cold case in Anne Arundel County after police detectives teamed up with a forensics lab trying to narrow down a possible killer. ABC2 News' Skylar Henry spoke with a hopeful dad who had to watch his son slowly die. Yeah, Kelly, even in the last month, parts are still moving into who killed Michael Temple Jr., a 24-year-old who was shot fighting back against his masked attackers. Now a Virginia DNA lab is hoping their snapshot will help uncover who pulled the trigger. When Michael died, autopsy results showed his injuries during the attack were the cause of his death, changing the case from an assault to a murder. Just as they were then, clues were scarce. 
but there was that splotch of DNA. The suspects in this case were both wearing masks, so witness identifications based on that is not a, is not a possibility. With this DNA evidence, it may point us in the right direction of someone from that maybe lived in the area that maybe saw these people prior. We're predicting traits. We predict here's this person's likely eye color, their skin color, hair color, the amount of freckles on their face, and then the shape of their face. You know, does this person have a wider jaw or a pointier nose, things like that. Dr. Ellen McRae Graytech is putting a fresh look on this otherwise cold case. She's one of the brains behind Parabon Nano Labs a DNA tech company that has a program that's part forensics, part ancestry.com. We're working with little tiny quantities of DNA um, that could be as old as, uh, could be decades old. In this case, a few years. After sending that blood sample off to a third party lab, the specialists at Parabon used their program Snapshot to come up with this, a rendering of the man they think killed Michael Jr. But the point is, the vast majority of people in the world are not going to match that. So if you gave a police department that sketch or that composite, there would be a lot of people that they could eliminate from their suspect list. It's the closest Anne Arundel County police have been to solving this nearly decade-old cold case. So when I'm putting in a profile to CODIS, I'm straight up trying to make a match. Right. Does it match anybody in CODIS? When you're doing genealogy, you're saying, is this similar to anybody in this database? Oh. So it's a different question. Yeah, I see. Okay. And it's got a different set of data you're looking at. Because CODIS is just what's allowed by law. It's only right. crime Federally scenes. mandated. Right. right. Convict offenders. Some states allow arrestees. But the genealogy database is whoever's interested in it. You know, my mother asked me for Mother's Day, please do the genealogy testing. So I'm in it. So, but I'm not in CODIS because. <laughs> right, right. You know, so. That's fair. I never thought about it that way, that CODIS is looking for the round peg, round hole. Yes. And the the genetic genealogy is looking more than anything they can fit in the hole. It yeah. doesn't necessarily have to be round. It's just saying, is it kind of close? Something that wouldn't be maybe on a criminal database. You know, there's tight strictures about what you can investigate with, a, with the FBI's database. But with the genealogy, it's, it was an opportunity that never had happened before. So how did Parabon help in this case? So um, the type of DNA testing that I do, I'm looking at about 20 or so sections of DNA, and I'm measuring how long they are. So what genetic genealogy does is it actually looks at what the letters are. It's actually, you know, A's, T's, C's, and G's, Gattaca, all that, the DNA sequence. Okay. So for Parabon, they're actually reading the letters. So okay. we sent it out to them, and Parabon can say, hey, based on research, we know that if, you know, if you have a T at this location, you're more likely to have blonde hair than if you have a C chemical at this so location. So that's how they get the, the yeah. phenotyping or yeah. the physical appearance. Right. So the well, DNA cool. that I'm looking at, we don't look at any DNA associated with genes. Right, right. We can't tell anything about physical characteristics. Okay. And that's kind of on purpose. Right, yeah. For the criminal aspects of right, it. Right, yeah. But for Parabon, they can look at, and for genetic genealogy for any of these companies, they can look at genes that have to do with your physical characteristics. So hmm. 
they can look at research papers and say, chances are there's a greater chance than not that this person has blonde hair. That's not, I mean, we have to be more strict than that. And, right, well, and you have to be beyond a reasonable doubt, right? Right, but they're just trying to, like, maybe we can just, like, get a lead. Hey, yeah, look over here. Like, you could have video footage that's just lead. They're just trying to develop a, an image that could give you, help narrow it down slightly. And that's yeah. how we, we ended up with the composite saying, hey, it, it's, it's more likely to be a mm-hmm. white male with a specific eye color, with a specific mm-hmm. hair color and facial features mm-hmm. um, that, that are prominent depending on the region that their, their DNA ancestry came from. Right, exactly. And, I mean, it's, it's kind of fascinating. How long has, is, is I guess, the phenotyping... Mm-hmm. aspect of it. How long has that been around? Is that just specific to like the 2015 and more recent time frame, or, or was that anything that even remotely existed prior to? We didn't even, and I say like we like all of science, we didn't sure. even have the technology to sequence the human genome until about 2005. Because it was, it's very wow. time consuming to read the A's, the T's, the C's, and the G's. It was, it was a super difficult tasks that involved a lot of labs coming together in order to read every letter. Because we're talking three billion right, letters. Right, right. Each one of oh, us just has... three billion. Just that's, three billion. Just, that's all. I just don't a couple know why zeros. you're saying it takes just a long time. Zeros. Yeah. Just to read, you know, and the Human Genome Project wow. sequenced one person and it took years. So as they developed, okay, this... We know that we can look at this area and here's some clever ways to make instruments and to set up our experiments so we can read sections of DNA faster. Okay. So it wasn't until it was a couple years later, 2007, and then like 2010, I guess it really took off, where they're like, hey, we can put these different tests on a, a chip and we can test 20, 40, 60,000 little letters in a fairly short amount of time. That's pretty fascinating. It's actually really cool. You think that DNA has been around a lot, or DNA analysis as we think of it now Mm -hmm. has been around so long, and it hasn't. It's relatively new technology. I never realized that. That's funny. And I mean, I can think of a case recently where DNA was involved in uh, a um, Mm 50-year resolution in a case here in Anne Arundel County. Yes. I, I can't imagine what they were thinking back then as far as, de- like, what are we collecting? Why are we collecting this? Why right. are we keeping this? And then 50 years later, it ends up, you know, helping. Right. And, I mean, they had blood typing technology, and maybe you could tell a few characteristics um, of someone on, like, you know, if you're, like, O positive blood or O negative blood, that mm-hmm. it's called an RH factor, and you could do little things like that. But it doesn't narrow it down to one person, not like mm-hmm. DNA, but... I mean, we knew what DNA was. We just didn't right. have the technology to do it inexpensively. Mm. How to manipulate it. And, right. Yeah. To, it to, could, yeah. You know, and I mean, it. they did. It's, it's amazing. And I've really always been really proud of our agency for we always retain this old evidence. Mm. We don't, 50 yeah. years. We don't know what we could do with right. it. So we were like, eh, put it in the attic. You know, we're kind of like the good hoarders, right? You, you, <laughs> you just keep it in case. Hey, you know, well, and it's always good if, you know, there's a mistrial or something, you still have it you all to be know. able to retest yeah. and, um, you know, all of that type of stuff mm-hmm. just to make sure that we have the right people. Right. If new technology comes out and we can exonerate somebody, then Absolutely. that's what we're going to do, mm-hmm. you know? And so we have the the composite or the snapshot that was provided by Parabon. And I'm yep. sure there were 
groups of people who were eliminated just because they didn't really resemble the snapshot. And it, it didn't mm-hmm. sound like to me that we were getting any positive IDs like, oh, hey, this person looks familiar to me or I know this person. What was the next step in the process? Well, when you get the, the snapshot, yeah, it can, it can narrow down the race and the overall appearance, but it can't tell you how you style your hair, long hair, short hair, what you're, if you wear a beard or not. That's not like a genetic thing. So it, it's not always recognizable to a specific person. So a couple of years later, um, I guess about 2018, was when um, California had a case, the Golden State Killer. Yep. And they said, well, all these folks are searching their DNA in genetic genealogy to see who they're related to. How about we take the DNA from the crime scene and we see if we can find, not the, we don't think that the killer did, gene, you know, right. what's interested in his genealogy, but maybe a cousin did. Doesn't even know this person. They right. were just, you know, I want to see who my cousins are. And then maybe searching the crime evidence against the database, we can come up with a family. And then detectives can, like, entirely separate from DNA, can do the usual sort of investigation. Right, yeah, through investigative means and, yep. Who has means and motive and opportunity and mm-hmm. things that I have. Corroborate. They can I corroborate what was found. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's part of it is you get... You get a key, but you got to make sure the key fits the lock. Right. You know, and so that's what the corroboration and everything that we harp on in all of our podcasts of it's not just what you know, it's what you can prove. Right. Um, and we have to corroborate all of that, even even the DNA. Mm-hmm. You know, if the mm-hmm. DNA is saying one thing and this person is in, you know, France, well, clearly it wasn't them. There was some type of, of mm-hmm. error somewhere along the line, you know, <laughs> so you have to corroborate everything. Because would that, would that ever come into play with like identical twins? Identical twins will have identical DNA. Mm. Different fingerprints, though. Your oh. fingerprints are not dictated by DNA. They form spontaneously. Nor are your belly buttons. <gasps> but I do you like leave that. belly button prints at crime scenes a lot? Probably not. I hope. Well, depending on the crime. <laughs> so we, we've, we've moved beyond the composite. Right. Um, and we, we've started going back towards specificity. Yes. So Paramount is saying, can we narrow this down to a family? Does, is this DNA, a large percentage of this DNA, very similar to anybody in the database who's not the perpetrator, but who was looking for relatives? And can we find, you know, some cousins that are awfully similar to this? And maybe, you know, we can just look at all the profiles in the database, but if we find a cousin that lives in Anne Arundel County at the time frame when this happens, and then maybe they, through investigative techniques, mm-hmm. we can narrow it down who else in the family would be a possible suspect. So that's, that's what, what we did. We, um, I took the evidence and um, our crime scene unit sent it out to Parabon and they did their style of DNA testing. And then they started building a family tree, essentially, who could be a relative of this evidence. And then they give that back to you guys and the detectives, and that's when the detectives yeah. do their detecting. Yep. And and work from there. Yeah, it all comes back to like traditional detective work of you got to have those leads. Looking, though. Yeah, not you the, the have science have a, is a lead. The science oh my is a gosh, lead. A but, huge one. But it it then you go back to doing the whole the old gumshoe on the street. Yeah. Yeah. So was that in twenty eight? 
team that we, we started, I guess, uh, down that path and mm-hmm. uh, they started to gather that information. And, and I, don't, I don't know if you're uh, we're, we're part of the, the conversations that, that took place. How did, I guess, how quickly did that start to move once we got that information from, from Paravon? Once they were working the family tree, it was pretty quick. Pretty quick. It okay. was pretty quick. It was, um, we've worked several cases this way, and sometimes you're like, uh, it's family tree, it's, there's a lot of cousins, and it takes a long time because mm-hmm. very rapidly it branches off. You know, you go to family, some family reunions, it's like hundreds of people, <laughs> right. right? And then you've got some very small families. And I believe for this one, it was pretty immediate that they're like, wait a minute, this name, this is somebody who might have a connection to the victim. And that's interesting. Very. So I want to thank you, Sarah, for your time. I think you've been very... Uh, Enlightening. Very. <laughs> I learned a lot today. I did. I learned a lot today. I, I had no idea about how recent this DNA technology was. I had no idea that now we can just use a couple of cells, which is And we've is met before. We've talked to me. before. Oh, well, we yeah. worked cases before. All the time. Yeah. But I don't ask those questions. Well, I just take your word for it. If you tell me that's this is an apple, I'm going to say, yep, that sure is an apple. And you're like, I did some detecting. And I'm like, all right, I don't really talk to people. <laughs> well, here's your apple. <laughs> I work in a lab. I don't talk to people. I just I just do the science part. This, so. was, this was fascinating to me. I need to come visit you more. Please do. I will. Lieutenant Davis, thank you once again. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. An excruciating wait for answers for Michael Temple Sr. and the rest of the Temple family in the senseless murder of Michael. It took detectives longer than they had hoped to uncover those answers, but they are finally making positive progress and are one step closer to bringing their suspect to justice. What comes next was not only surprising to investigators, but the Temple family as well. Join us next time for part three to hear how detectives use the science behind our DNA to renew their efforts in identifying and tracking down the suspect who was responsible for the death of Michael Temple Jr.